Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Run for the Song Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode four of Drum for the Song Podcast. I am your host, Dane Campbell. As you can see, I've got an amazing guest today. I'm so excited to announce I'm going to be speaking to Matt Sorum. So Matt Sorum joined Guns N' Roses, you might have heard of them, in 1990. He recorded Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 and The Spaghetti Incident with that band and toured around the world. Before Guns N' Roses, he was the drummer in The Cult. A little bit later in his career, he founded Velvet Revolver with uh, former bandmates Slash and Duff McKagan, with Scott Weiland on vocals. He won a Grammy Award for Velvet Revolver, and he's also been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Matt is a drummer who likes to keep himself very busy. He's been in various projects uh, with Billy Gibbons, Slash's Snake Pit, Kings of Chaos, Tori Amos, The Neurotic Outsiders, Deadland Ritual featuring Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath, and he's even played on the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie song. I had an incredible conversation with Matt, so make sure you keep listening. He talks about how he joined Guns N' Roses in the first place, and what it was like recording Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 and the Spaghetti Incident. He also talks about his recent recordings with Billy Gibbons on a blues album, and how he had to kind of relearn all the blue shuffles. He also talks about how proud he is and how lucky he feels to have played for Motorhead during an American tour. He filled in for Mickey D while Mickey went on the Swedish version of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He's got loads of great stories to tell. Uh, one in particular about when him and Slash ended up in a foam party in Ibiza. So uh, make sure you uh, listen till the end, share with your friends because I think this one is going to be very interesting to a lot of people, not just drummers. Let's get straight to the interview then. Run for the Song Podcast. So hello there. I'm very lucky to be with Matt Sorum today. How are you, Matt? I'm doing great, Dane. How are you, pal? Where are you? I'm uh, speaking to you from my house in Wales, in the UK. It's, in even, it's a, almost bedtime here. I guess it's midday for you. Yeah, midday in California. Nice. Nice and sunny and warm. Uh, today we've got a little bit of overcast, but for us it's cold. It's like uh, 75 degrees. <laughs> I don't know if it is in Celsius. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that would be considered fairly warm here, you know, for this time of year. Yeah. Um, it's been rainy and overcast today. It's not nice, but uh, we get rain in California and everyone just crashes their car. I don't understand. We're like, ah, ah rain. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny because you know you guys get rained on all the time, and you're yeah, like, hey. it's like it's like probably three hundred days a year. I'm probably not exaggerating. When the sun comes out, that's a celebration. Yeah, yeah, and you know, <laughs> we, we've been lucky, man. So. Uh, yeah, it's starting to kind of, the end of the summer is looming, you can tell. Mm. 
definitely for us anyway we i think we had our summer really early this year which was strange but uh you welshmen there's some great welshmen you know you know who i met from wales who tom jones you met tom jones yeah i had dinner with him what that's amazing would you besides your pops phil he's probably the most famous welshman huh i think he's definitely the most famous welsh musician i would say yeah yeah well yeah definitely i think there's a few actors out there and who are some actors from wales uh my mind's gone completely blank now one of the one of the bat batmans uh, oh yeah <laughs> i'm i my I, I i'm having a mind fart but yeah this you didn't know we were going to go into welsh trivia so I, did, so. I didn't know to be honest <laughs> but uh you're doing the interview and you go ahead you you talk to me man it's cool um <laughs> What's the virus situation been like in California for you? How has it affected your drumming plans this summer? Well, I I had gigs booked. You know, I had a lot of gigs booked, like everybody else, uh, most of the summer for Kings of Chaos, my super group. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, it's turned a kind of a bad situation into, you know, a, a, a cool situation. I'm making a record with Billy Gibbons right now. Another another one, because you did one before, right? Yeah, which is the second record called The Big Bad Blues. That's the name of the band. So it's Billy Gibbons and The Big Bad Blues, and I'm part of that. Yeah. I did that. So we've been out in um, Pioneer Town, which is near Palm Springs, California, where my second home is. It's too hot there right now. But uh, there's a town called Pioneer Town, and there's a pretty cool club up there that's pretty famous now called Pappy and Harriet's. And about two out, uh, about 20 minutes from Pappy, not even less, 10 minutes from Pappy and Harriet's, we have a ranch, about 140 acres. Wow. Recording studios. And it's not a lot out there, right? This time of year, rattlesnakes, coyotes, and, you know, <laughs> and tacos. And uh, basically, we've been out there, um, and we've got about... 10 great tracks we recorded about 14 we got to whittle down to 10 we're going to add a couple more and then we'll have a record uh for billy hopefully coming out sometime in the beginning of the year oh wow and then come hopefully come over to europe next summer is to talk you know if we can if everything's going to go ahead we have to kind of wait and see right yeah 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 would you be touring with billy or is it more of a studio project no, I, I, I like playing drums with Billy. It's fun. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. different for me. It's not hard rock. You know, it's got like, it's more blues based. Uh, but if you look at early ZZ Top stuff, if you go back to the early version of the band, I would say it's more like that. It's got like, you know, because I can't play like super. Well, I love the blues, but I'm playing. Uh, it's more rock blues. Yeah. It's more rock, rock and blues, if you will. Yeah, I, I've actually listened to the, the first album you did with Billy um, after doing a little bit of research. And yeah, I thought I've actually written it down here that I loved the drum sound on it. It was like a really natural sound, which was yeah. was quite, these days, it's quite rare, I, I find, because everything's yeah, we, really... We went for kind of a distorted drum sound. Like we kind of, the way we got those drums sounding so crazy was we, we overdrove most of the amp. Uh, the uh, ah, right. so we got this kind of like ringy distortion 
uh, on the drums and, and a lot of room mics, you know, a lot of room mics, not a lot of close mics, like sort of old school. And the new album, we're doing even the same thing, but the drums are actually even a little bit dirtier. They're like, oh. uh, we're go we actually, we're recording the drums in a garage, you know? Really? Nice. And it kind of got this, this dirty, you know, thing that's just, it's, it's cool. So it's funny to say, when you say garage band, you know, we're like, okay, we're actually literally making the album. We, there's two studios at this desert spot. And one is a proper studio in a big warehouse. But we had this other drum set set up in this, this old garage. And I went in there and played. I'm like, wow, what's, there was just a vibe. Nice. Yeah. We moved all the equipment in there. Wow. Yeah, so the whole album's being made in this this wooden garage. And anyway, you know, whatever works, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. It's cool that you get to experiment. So, so yeah, I guess the first album, I noticed there was a lot of um, kind of like blue shuffles on there. Was that something you'd played a lot of in the past? Or did you kind of have to teach yourself a little bit before going into that session? I did. I, ha I had to woodshed that particular shuffle. And that shuffle isn't a rock shuffle. I could, that's called a... The Texas shuffle, is it? Texas shuffle. So in proper terms, there's a few different versions of it. There's like one where you play quarter notes on the ride and you shuffle with the left hand. The kick drum's doing the same thing as the left hand. Ba -boom, ba -ba, ba -boom, ba -ba. Or you have a single note kick, quarter note kick going on underneath with the left hand shuffling. Nice. Or you shuffle both hands on the two and the four and you play quarter notes or you play the shuffle on all three. So nice. it gets tricky, but it's, it sounds simple, but it's actually a art form. It, and there's, there's great guys that do it brilliantly, which is like Chris Layton that was in Stevie Ray Vaughan's band. Of course listen to that early Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff with Chris Layton on there and the Double Trouble album, you know, that band. Yeah, yeah. That's like premier Texas drumming. That's where they came from, I guess. That was one yeah. of the orig original kind of rock, rocky blues. You know, I used to play it like when I play like, I can't think of a band I really did a shuffle with. I never did a shuffle with Guns N' Roses, really. I never really did what was the call, you know? No, like, no. Not even a rock shuffle. Or if you listen to a song by Queen, like Tie Your Mother Down, that would be a shuffle, right? But, tie your mother down. But, but it's played more rock. Yeah. You know? I, I know what you mean, yeah. It doesn't have that, 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 that subtle, like, tasty thing going on in there. It's just rocking it, you know? I can't believe believe I ever did one with your. I can't think of a Motorhead song that would be helpful. Um, uh, I think I think the songs that have that feel, kind of triplet feel, but it's it, it's more of a like a snare kind of a snare drag ghost note kind of vibe. It's, there's none that go do, 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 like. No, no. There's a few that go like that maybe, but it's different. Go back to a lot of like seventies bands, like even Thin Lizzy and That's what I was gonna mention, yeah, Thin Lizzy. Some of the older seventies bands, the shovel was a pretty predominant groove. Yeah, man. Like uh, 
This is a song I've never seen before. It's called Easy Living. You're right, Heap, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's like true. All that, like all that stuff. Uh, I can't think of it. There's a lot of bands out of the 70s. Yeah. In the 80s, things got pretty straightforward, you know, Motley Crue. Like, boom, boom. Everyone was trying to like, sort of like cop ACDC or, or you know, Cashmere from Zeppelin. So everything got very like, boosh, bosh, boosh, right? Yeah, it's very straight. And I guess, I guess then, it, then it went ele electronic for a while, right? Yeah, and then when Nirvana came along, you know, like when and Dave Grohl, he started doing the Skippy Bees, but it wasn't a shuffle, but yeah, it loosened up the the drumming for rock, right? And yeah, you were able to sort of like go back to like maybe like early Mitch Mitchell, Jimi Hendrix, and that style. He played a lot more. Drummers were allowed to play more, if that makes sense. Yeah, it was a lot more free. Yeah. It's great to see how people from those periods go back and and then create their own kind of style based on everything that preceded them. I don't know how much further they can go in the future because I guess <laughs> everything has been done, but um, it's always interesting to see unique players. Yeah, well, you know, you listen to, even like if you go and you listen to like hip-hop music, which I don't listen to a lot of hip-hop music. No, not me really. But when I started playing with Geezer Butler with Black Sabbath, I, you know, and I always loved Black Sabbath, but I went back and I was really listening to Bill Ward's drumming on songs like Sweet Lead. Yeah. I was like, that's a hip-hop beat. Or some hip-hop guy heard that. Because a lot of hip-hop guys were influenced by rock. But so it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing because rock drummers, especially out of England in the 70s, Bonham, Bill Ward, even Ian Pace from Deep Purple, they were all influenced by different things and it wasn't rock. Bill Ward came from like this whole triplet jazz feel. He was more of a jazz drummer and especially Bonham. Bonham listened to a lot of Motown music so if you listen to the way he played, like that was, you know, that was Little Rich, uh, Little Richard, right? Or Chuck Berry, or like, you know, I can't remember the intro that he uh, that he played on that. It was exactly like a, I believe it was a Chuck Berry song or a Little Richard song. But anyway, he was influenced by this sort of like '50s music and then Motown, and. Obviously, uh, Bill Ward. So when I was listening to Sabbath, I'm like, wow, man. It's not the typical, like, as a rock drummer, you go like, wow, that's not like, bush, ush, bush, bush, ush. It's not that. No, it's, not at all. <laughs> it's swinging and it's got this, you know, the beginning of War Pigs. I mean, it's like this swing. Ba -boom, ba -dum, da -dum, ba one, two, three, four, five, six, boom, right? And you're like, what? So I I tell a lot of young drummers, they go, you know, hey, I listen to you, Matt, and that's cool. I go, thanks, but, you know, go check out, like, <laughs> Gene Krupa or, you know, Buddy Rich or, like, go, go check out some of the early. Maybe there's something in that for you that you could take and make it your thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because... I mean, 
I've been in so many different bands that I've always just sort of morphed to what the band wanted. It's like, you know, when Lemmy called me to come play with, you know, him and Pop, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, it's Motorhead, you know, and most of the, most of those grooves are boom, baka, ba-da, boom, baka, ba-da, right? Boom, baka, boom, baka, boom, baka, right? Yeah. So my biggest dilemma was like, okay, which one is this? Is this the booga baka, booga baka, booga baka? <laughs> boom, baka, booga baka, right? So, <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> and I, there's a lot of motorhead songs, you know, obviously the biggest, most famous songs of, you know, Ace of Spades, Bomber, you know, you know, Eat Rich, and, uh, you know, all those sort of, songs that had different feels but but that was a different style and it still had to be aggressive so as a drummer it's about the groove but you have to you have to now you have to put attitude into it and you got to make it sound rock and roll and yeah aggressive. yeah powerful yeah now it's like you can't take a jazz drummer and throw him in a motorhead you know it doesn't work like that you know it's, it's like you need to throw down so there's an energy a physicality but there's there's subtleties in the music that you know these you know lemmy came from a time when you know out of the 70s and phil and yeah. and those guys listen to all those that that music so it's not just a punk rock band you're not just up there bashing away if this is like so every band that i joined i always studied that and like when i joined the cult you know the cult had music that had come from like, you know, British uh, sort of goth. You know, they came out of that, uh, and then it kind of morphed into like American rock and roll. Like, you know, like they came to America, started writing Harleys, and but they were still listening to ACDC. You know, so, and then, then it became like then, then the eighties and the nineties hit. So as a band. If you want to compete and have his career, you have to kind of morph a little bit. You have yeah. to be like, well, I don't want to completely like change who we are, but we have to be able to compete. You know, it's almost like when the Foo Fighters came. I remember Velvet Revolver when we did our first record, and all those beats were like, where the Foo Fighters, all of a sudden. Every, all of a sudden, everything is really rigid. Queens of the Stone Age. Right? So I was like, I was listening to that going, well, let's be aggressive that way. So if you go back and listen to the first Velvet Revolver album, there's a lot of that kind of shit going on. Like, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. So, so you said the... Yeah, it came off punky, but it was modern yeah it fit, fitted the time yeah if that makes any sense at all it's sort of like you know rhythmically i think the world moves rhythmically mm. yeah interesting and people ask me what what's the difference about music now and music in the 70s and music in the 80s and i i usually say the drugs that people are taking <laughs> if you go to a rave show yeah you know what i mean yeah. What are you doing? Well, <laughs> I've been to one, I wouldn't call it a rave, but I went to an electronic dance event, totally sober. I was driving and I had fun, but it was mainly because I was just watching people. And I don't know why they were on, but 
they were having a good time, you know. <laughs> they were having a good time. You were like, huh? I was, yeah, I felt like a complete alien because it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And, you know, it was um, my, my brother-in-law, that's what he does. He does the music, you know, he creates electronic music. Oh, wow. I don't know what it's technically classed of, the genre, but he's, he's really good at it. So I thought me and my wife, we went to support him. And it's, it didn't start till like 11 p.m., something like that, which is crazy because yeah. no, normally yeah. like gigs finish, like rock gigs finish by 11 normally, especially in this part of the world. I don't know about the States. I don't know. Funny that you say that because one time I was with Guns N' Roses, we were on tour and uh, we ended up on that island, Ibiza, uh, Ibiza right? It's yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so this is the early 90s, like 91. And I think we were on, we were on a, like a little break because we had a big gig in England at the old Wembley Stadium. Wow. About a week off. So we all headed to Ibiza, Spain. And me and Slash are like drinking in this bar. It's like midnight or one in the morning. The guy, and me and Slash are like, hey. The guy was saying like last call or something. We're like, what? And he's like, and we're like, is there any other bars open? He goes, no, but I know this club. If you go down the road, blah, 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 go past to the right. So me and Slash got a car and we drove to this club. And there was like a thousand people in this place. And we're like, what the hell is this? And we hear that sound. <laughs> this is like one, right? We're like, what? And that sound was like so powerful. And I remember we walked, we, they didn't know who we were and they're slash, you know, and I'm like, you know, got my head, you know, we look like those guys. Yeah wasn't their style of music. We were like these two punter dudes that were like, whatever. And we paid to get in and we went in there and it was like, everyone was like, all all of a sudden, all this foam started coming out of the ceiling and people were, (laughs) and we we were so, we were so, you know, we were like, this is great. It was like a lot of pretty girls, obviously. And, and we went in there and I remember leaving there at like six or seven in the morning and people were like going to another party. And I'm like, okay. yeah, it was Ibiza, Spain. Yeah. So. yeah. That's, it's got a reputation for being just complete party central. So that makes 30, sense. 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 I remember when dance music hit America, I go, I heard that shit like 10 years ago. What are you guys talking about? Oh, so you mean it didn't really exist in America before then? Not that no. kind of stuff. Wow. Didn't really cross over into music until sort of like, maybe like Madonna brought in some aspects of it. Yeah. She, she did an album called Ray of Light, started mix, mixing electronics and it became more of a mainstream thing. But dance music was never really taken serious. Oh, wow. And then this DJ thing hits and you're like, what? I mean. <laughs> I mean, I knew Steve Aoki when he worked at a little bar up the street. He was like the guy that was behind this, you know, like it was a tiny place. And now he's getting a million bucks a night or whatever. And he's like, I'm like, I knew that guy when he was like running the records at this tiny bar, you know? What? Yeah. So when that, when that genre hit, I think for all musicians, it was a little confusing because it took over like, 
a lot of like people's mindset, you know, like I'm into dance music and I go to, you know, and it, I think maybe musicians felt a little bit threatened because they're like, well, I got a band. I got all these instruments and this guy goes up there and pushes a button and he, and they can get a hundred thousand people. You're like, what? Yeah. And so it was confusing, but I, I look at it like, you know, music goes through waves and everything's about, you know, listening to what's happening and experimenting. Not to say that I use a lot of electronic stuff in my music, but, but, you know, listening to it with an open mind and going, wow, there's, you know, there's some there's some heavy DJs. I listen to Skrillex and some of these guys. Like, like uh, I think uh, he came from like a rock metal background, didn't he? Skrillex. Yeah, I think, I think he did. It's it's heavy. Listening, like wow. So he's got like the mindset of you know heavy rock, but he's creating it with digital sounds. So you kind of got to look at it. You can't. I don't want to be the old guy going that all sucks. You no. know. <laughs> you know. I think, you know, if it's good, it's good. It's almost like, is it good music or is it bad music? There's two kinds of music. One is good, one's bad. <laughs> I don't like it, I like it, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, how's it going with you? What's going on with your band? Well, we, again, we were supposed to be, actually, we were supposed to be having our busiest summer festivals ever. Nothing's, obviously, we haven't played anything. We haven't even played a show all year unfortunately but we've just recorded a new album so that's exciting and that should be released hopefully by 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 christmas i hope nothing official yet but um maybe i shouldn't be saying this but uh yeah but we've been busy we've done an album like a socially distanced recording session which was strange it was just one of us going in at a time and doing our parts which was i guess a different experience rather than have all the, the whole band together Luckily, we wrote, we wrote the album together just before the kind of lockdown in the UK started. Uh, so we were lucky, really, to kind of at least get the right inside of it done. But uh, yeah, we, we're playing a waiting game, really, because there's no shows happening in Europe at the moment. I think they've tried a few socially distanced shows and outdoor car shows where you can take your car, drive through shows, and nothing's really been successful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, yeah, very weird. But. Like I said, I think that this will be an interesting uh, influx of new music for people because when has been the time when we really had the opportunity to pause and really like go, well, we got a lot of time to write this album. And it's not like, hey, we better hurry up and get this record done because we got a tour this summer. It's more like... Let's take our time, yeah. And... I can, I've done a few of these virtual things. I'm releasing a couple August 15th. I'm doing a big charity event here in America. Uh, check it out. Go on, uh, go on Music Cares or Neva. Neva is the National Association for uh, Small Venues, Independent Venues. Oh, amazing. A lot of the clubs are going out of business. The little clubs are going out of business. Yeah, same but, here. Yeah, a lot, a lot of them, or if they haven't gone out of business yet, they very concerned that, well, how are they gonna survive, you know? Yeah, so basically we're doing this fundraiser and I did one with Lizzie Hale from, uh, ah. from Hailstorm and 
Gilby and and uh, Blasco from Ozzy's band on bass, and then wow. uh, Linda Perry, who's a big singer songwriter. Uh, I did another one with Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and I saw that your dad just did put, released one yesterday. I think it was. He did something with Sepultura. I don't know if that was. I don't know if that was linked to a charity, but maybe it was, but um, I thought that you put one out, but I'm yeah, it's I, cool. yeah, yeah. Did that slash played the solo on one. And so we just been doing that, you know, I mean, I know it gets kind of boring to watch those a little bit. They're a little like, Oh fuck, here comes another virtual performance. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just not the same, but for us as musicians, I mean, the reason we do it is because we love to play. So it's a different experience. And, you know, so I did two of those. Uh, I did a solo thing by myself. I made a whole version of a Tom Petty song that I'm oh. going to put up probably in about two weeks. Oh, wow. That band's called The Mats. The Mats. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, I played everything myself. And then I, I got inspired by this guy, Keith Urban. Yeah, I know. He's huge in America, right? I saw him on TV and it was like him. He was everyone in the band. Right. Bass player, he was the drummer. He did a virtual thing. I'm like, I want to do that. So I want to record all the instruments. And then I shot the video like that. Awesome. Yeah, so I'll put that out in a few weeks. I won't back down. I have a charity in Brazil that we raise money for COVID victims. Oh, wow. So it's for that. And then uh, what else have I been doing? Well, I've been I've been working on uh, getting the Kings of Chaos album going too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start on that soon. It looks like we got some more time here. I'd say probably it doesn't look like anything's gonna be probably happening until at least late spring. Yeah. You know? So I got I got the end of the, all this year and probably the beginning of next year. And I, I I might not record the whole whole record all at once. I might record like batches of songs, like do a couple, three, release them. That seems to be what they, because everything's streaming now, right? Predominantly streaming. A lot of people are saying that should be the new way to distribute the music. But I guess we're all old school rock guys. We appreciate the, the full album. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I guess down the down at the end of all of it, I could put a record out. But yeah. Everyone's telling me, man, just start releasing songs and yeah, put up content. I'm like, okay, you know, because Kings of Chaos is a little bit difficult because I have to get different singers for every song, and so it could be easier than trying to like, you know, chase twelve guys, you know, girls or whatever. Yeah. But the good thing is, right now I know they're I know they're not out touring. Exactly. Right? Yeah, it's a good time to try and grab people. Yeah. So I'm going to start on that now. Nice. Have you got any um, anything coming up with the, the Deadland ritual? What's the new, newest situation on that? Nothing with it right now. You know, we've, we've all kind of, it's gone a little bit quiet just because you know, we, we were going to plan to work, but we didn't. And then everyone jumped into like just being with their families. And, you know, so no, no future plans for that right now. Okay. That's fair enough. Mm-hmm. I'm sure most people who are listening to this already know, but you you played you joined Guns N' Roses in the early '90s. Uh, you played you played on Use Your Illusion one and two and the Spaghetti Incident. 
Yes. Well, could you just briefly describe kind of the process of recording User Illusion? It ended up being two separate albums and... First thing we did on that album was we went out and we all got drunk together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that basically is the true story. I, I came, you know, I came out of the cult yeah. in, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And luckily, Slash and Duff had come to my last show with the cult. And I, you know, that was 30 years ago. It's crazy. Yeah. And I was, you know, that band at that particular time, the cult, we were, we were on fire. We were doing really well. We had an album called Sonic Temple. And, and it, was, it was a strong tour. We were at the top of our game. You know, I was, I was playing good and I'm sorry about that. That's okay. And so Slash and Duff saw me and then it ended up, I ended up coming in and originally I was going to fill in for Steven Adler and just make the record. And he was going to come back into the band because, you know, they recorded, started to try to record and it just wasn't working or whatever was happening. And I don't know the particulars, but only what I've seen or read. But anyway, I came in there and we started working on all this material, which they had a lot of it. And uh, and then one day, uh, Flash asked me to come up to his house and he said, hey man, I went, you know, we decided we want you to join the band. And I said, well, I'm already in a band. So I, I had to go back and tell the cult I was leaving and I was gonna join them. Mm-hmm. So they made me a member of the group. You know, I became, a member and you know and people a lot of people don't really know the story like you know was he a sideman was he a hired gun it's like no pun intended <laughs> <laughs> but at that particular time i was a member of the group you know yeah, i, yeah. I, I kind of knew okay i've already got a band let me negotiate myself into a membership i got a percentage of everything so just to make the story straight i was not a hired side guy i was a i was a member of the Guns and Roses. And yeah, I never, I never assumed you were a hired, a hired gun. I always, yeah, I always knew you were in the bands. Been like, oh, they, you know, he's a hired guy, or you know, whatever they want to say. But um, so anyway, I went in and I made those records. Now, we started recording everything as we were going to make one album. So the idea was we're going to record 30 songs and we're going to whittle that down to 12 or 13 or 14 songs, right? Yeah, that's kind of a standard thing. In those days, a lot of bands would record a lot of material, maybe not 30, hmm. but 25 or 20. And then a lot of times in the recording process, some songs come out better than others. You get like, wow, that's like, I had no idea it was going to be so great. And so... That was the mindset until one day Axel walked in and said, we're going to make this a double album. We were like, what? And in my particular time, you know, just joining the band, I was like, wow, this is kind of over the top and there's a lot of material. And now we had to go and we had to complete over 30 songs, right? Yeah. Which took a lot of time. So, you know, they put the band out on the road and well, let's go back a little bit. So before that, Axel had to finish all these vocals, right? So now he had to sing 30 songs. So we started recording the spaghetti incident while we were waiting for Axel to finish the vocals. Right, okay. So those particular records, 
that record spaghetti incident was done before we even left to go on tour with usual illusions one or two and i i don't know if that story has been told before but i i think so you know duff would call and say like hey man let's record new rose you know by uh, the damned or you know or let's do fear uh let's do fuck you by fear because he was a real punker you know i wasn't yeah. i wasn't a punk rock guy right i was really sort of like i like savage zeppelin you know all the typical and i like a little bit of progressive music but i didn't i wasn't like eh, punk rock you know but duff was a punk guy and slash was more like me more classic rock aerosmith you know and uh maybe we went over to bands like nazareth and like you know uh, he liked ufo i liked ufo nice of course motorhead you know motorhead was like an like for us as rockers was always the band that had the attitude of a punk band but played hard rock and roll which i never considered heavy metal no i considered it hard rock and i know that lemmy didn't like being called heavy metal no it was a rock and roll band with fucking, you know, grit. So Guns N' Roses was sort of a, a mishmash of that. Like the bands that they modeled themselves after, right? It was Motorhead, you know, a band out of, uh, out of Australia called Rose Tattoo. Yeah, I know those. Yes, Angry Anderson and those yeah. guys were fully tattooed. It was like the first band... You know, even when I joined Guns N' Roses, I didn't, I had like one tattoo. And I remember going in and getting like completely, right. you know, <laughs> you know, like, oh shit, I, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a virgin. I better get this. <laughs> so I remember going in and do this. So we did this Getty incident. And then uh, we started out on the Usual Illusions one and two big world tour and we hadn't finished the records yet. We hadn't even finished the albums and we had about three months of touring where we were playing songs no one ever heard before. Oh, right, right, I didn't know that. Wow. You gotta remember that was pre-internet. So yeah. no one would be able to get away with that now. True. You know, we played Rock and Rio. If you go back and watch, we opened with a song no one had ever heard, but the place still went nuts. We opened with a song called Pretty Tied Up. Yeah. which was a really cool song that actually should have been a single, but um, we had so many songs. So anyway, yeah, I recorded those records, toured with that band. And then, uh, you know, we, when we came off Usual Illusion 1 and 2 tour, I would say that we were a bit burnt out. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> you know, we were out there for three and a half years, uh, pretty much straight. That's crazy. We were home at all. We made a video or, and it was just, you know, it was crazy times. It was far above any rock and roll expectation. You know, like as you, as a kid, I mean, you're a rock and roller. You, you're like, man, I just want to get on stage and play rock and roll in front of people. Yeah. You know, and then you get in a band like GNR and it's like, it's kind of like more than you dreamt of. It's like, it, it's actually a bit out of control. It was a little hard to sort of navigate it all because you're now one of the most famous rock and roll bands in the world and you got all these people kind of clamoring around you and things get confusing. Mm. So I think for all of us uh, coming out of Use Your Illusions, we were such a big band. There was, where, where are we going to go from here? Kind of thing. 
you know, so after the, that tour, it took us a couple years to get back together. I made a record with Slash, the first Slash's Snake Pit album. I know it well. Because me and him went, me and, he called me up and he goes, Matt, let's, let's go write some songs. I'm like, oh, thanks, Slash. That'd be cool. And, you know, I don't think he knew that I even played guitar in those days, but I play guitar. So there's a song in the album called Lower. I actually wrote the bass line to that. And I played. Nice. Well, I didn't know you played bass. I go, well, yeah, I can play bass, man. So we hung out. We did all this. And then as the story goes, we gave those songs to, to Axel and Duff came up to listen to what we had written. And at that point, Izzy Stratton had left the band. Right. So we had all this material and we thought, hey, let's play for Axel, see if he digs it. So Axel came up and he didn't like what he'd heard. He, he just did not, he wanted to make a different kind of record. He goes, no, 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 I wanna, I wanna make something. He was listening to like Nine Inch Nails and we were getting a little bit like, we're, we weren't firing on the same thought process. We were thinking different things. So, so me and Slash decided, well, shit, we got all these songs. Let's, let's record them. So we called the label and they gave us a record deal. And we made that first Slash the Snake Pit record, which is five o'clock somewhere. Cause yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's strange, man. Cause um, I've got an older brother who plays in my band and, he must, I guess he must have bought that album, you know, around when it was first released. So I always remember that being played in the car, in the house. And I recently checked it out again, you know, when I found out I was speaking to you. And like, it, the songs just came back to me so quickly. There's some great songs on there. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, I didn't, I didn't know that was the story behind it. That was an interesting time for Slash though, because you got to remember you know, Slash had been in a working environment with the, the thing that worked for Guns N' Roses was obviously Izzy Stradlin and everyone always, the fans always say, well, where's Izzy? Because Izzy's songwriting capabilities were like, he could come up with a basic core of a song. You know, he could come in with like chord changes, like, you know, I used to love her, then I had to kill her, or patience. And then Slash and Duff would put like a riff on top of it. And then now there's a riff. So like, right. maybe it was just take me down to Paradise City where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. <laughs> but, you know, so those two and Izzy with Axel's lyric and Izzy wrote lyrics as well. Okay. That combination of guys that was that collective. And then when Slash went off to do the Snake Pit thing, now he had me and he was, you know, which I was discovering my songwriting abilities. Cause like, I didn't really write songs with the Cole. I didn't write uh, songs for Guns N' Roses. You know, I was there. I, as a drummer, I did my part to elevate the music. And, um, Slash gave me my first publishing. You know, I had publishing on that record. I was like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. Then I learned about publishing. I'm like, wow, this is like something I want to do more of. And so for Slash, it was like basically here he was on his own in a way with just me. And he was discovering that he could come up with songs on his own. Mm. 
And when we then when we got back into Velvet Revolver, you know, then when we started Velvet Revolver, I was like, I write songs. I'd done a solo album. So I jumped right in. I was like, here, I got a song. What do you guys think? And they're like, oh shit, Matt's got songs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote I wrote Set Me Free, me and Scott Walker. Oh wow. Everyone's got publishing, but I everyone knows that I that was the first song and I had the riff on the guitar. So but the thing that worked for that band is we were all chucking in ideas. We were like, what do you think? And we try to be, you know, it's hard when you're in a band, you got an idea and someone goes, I don't know, man. That could be like, you gotta be careful because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Cause yeah, I know what it's you mean. Like a weird thing. It's like, hey, I got this riff, what do you think? But I was, was always taught to really have an open mind about it and be like, well, let's try it. Even if at first you didn't like it. Yeah, let's try it. Yeah. I, mean, I got to be honest. Slash played some stuff. I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or any one of the guys, or even myself, it'd be like, maybe you'd see a look on their face to be like, but we were all taught sort of like, okay, let's just try it. And then if it didn't work down the line, we kind of, you know, it would organically move out and something better would come in. But I found that working with those guys, it was such an open environment that I started just like, I'd go home at night and I want to write more songs, you know? Wow. So that first Bell Revolver album, I'm an equal writer on those records. What was it? The second one too. Good. And that gave me as a drummer, a lot of uh, inspiration to to you know to go forward and 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 do more things you know and the new Billy Gibbons record I'm a co-writer on all that material and before I used to be a little bit afraid to like approach like how are you gonna walk up to Slash and play Slash a riff you know what I, know. I mean yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah you gotta have a lot going at like, yeah. I got a riff he'll be like <laughs> I got riffs too you know like funny right. Uh, so that's so cool, man. I didn't know. Well, like, I knew you played other instruments, but I, you know, I didn't really realize how much you got into the songwriting thing. So that's really inspiring. And I think it helps you understand other instruments and how they work by playing them yourself and writing, which I guess some drummers will only play the drums. And, you know, maybe they haven't had the opportunity to try a guitar or anything like that. But um, I think being a multi-instrumentalist, generally helps you understand the relationships between the instruments. Yeah, I, I think as a drummer, it's an interesting thing because if you look at a lot of drummers, uh, as a rhythm instrument, you know, here you are, the foundation of the band, if you will, at the same time, you know, you listen. I, I've always tried to be a song drummer, so I'm always listening outward. Like, what are those guys doing? I'm going to try to pick up the rhythm of what they're playing and work that into my groove or whatever. So going the other way around, I mean, especially if you look at guys like Don Hanley, you know, Bill Collins, of course, Dave Grohl jumped out as a drummer. Yeah. And if you listen to the Foo Fighters, that's so rhythm driven. It's all about, from what I understand, he, he records the guitar parts first and then cuts the drum second. So he's got the rhythm you know, the guitar is such a rhythm instrument. And he knows in his head, he's going to put the kick drum on that. Yeah. 
right? And so that's all already manufactured inside. Now, if you try to teach a guitar player that, they might not think, oh, that's exactly where the drum beat's gonna go. But for a drummer, you're thinking it the other way around. Like I'd be like, Slash, you got a groove, for, you got a beat for this? You're gonna be like, oh, not really. Right. Okay. What do you got? And it'd be like, you know, I remember one time I wrote this song. Actually, it's on the Snake Pit album. I can't remember the name of the song, but it's a 5-4 groove. And I had this beat. Boom, 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 And I was playing the beat. And Slash goes, I got a riff for that. I could pull it up. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, but it's on the first record. But the beat came before the riff. Awesome. And I remember I said to him, "Well, I inspired the riff, so let's 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 talk about you know who's I need to get credit." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Now, this is always the thing with with punk when you're in a band or whatever. Bands have a hard time deciding. Well, I wrote yeah. the song." came in with the whole song so i wrote it but if you're in the in the room hashing it out together if you're in like they call this nashville rules <laughs> and, see, and you know, everyone four guys come in a room and they start working on an idea well all four guys wrote the song that's that's how every band i've ever been in luckily we've always said everyone splits everything equal and it just Gets rid of any arguments. Yeah. I think that's fair. You're still spending the same time, you yeah. know, re writing and recording, but I guess there's arguments for the other way as well. But as a drummer, you know, let's say you're in the band and you're there and you're in there huffing it out with the guys. I mean, if the band wants to say, you know, dude, you're, you're the band, we're, we're working this out together. I think, down the line, it probably saves problems. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. From my experience, if you look at bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you look at the song titles, everyone's equal. Cool. Then there's other bands, you know, maybe the, I've heard that Food Fighters are like, Dave Grohl is like this, and then there's this. Hmm. Oh, and he walks in with, he goes, I got the song. Now let's work it out. So there's so many different ways, and I guess this, is a, this would be a master class on being in a band and how to like work out yeah. you know we could do that we could do a master class on how to the business of rock and roll and music and everything but you know uh everybody's got their own way of doing things if it's you know if it's a band situation like though revolver we ran really well on the fact that when we started a band it was like let's just be you know, let's be equal let's just you know and everyone's got to contribute though like yeah, you know, can't be like, hey, you know, I'm here. What do you got? You know, yeah, you know, you like, you know, you can't be the lazy guy. You got to be working as hard as the others or harder. If you haven't, as had, you know, I had a discussion not to drop names, which I'm going to drop one, but <laughs> from the Beatles, you heard of that band? So Ringo, and I've become. He lives about four blocks up the street from me, and what? I'm very honored to know the guy now. And anyway, 
got to remember, Ringo was the drummer in the Beatles, right? So you had these looming characters, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, walking in. And if you look at most of the catalog of the Beatles, it says Lennon and McCartney. And then there was George, and then there was Ringo. Now, they were given an opportunity to bring material, but it had to be as good as John and Paul's. Yeah. Oh, man, that's going to be tough. It's going to be I, tough. <laughs> I got to be in the life and Blackbird and like, you know. So Ringo told me this story where he just, you know, he was just like completely feeling left out. And he took off and he went down to the south of France and he, he, was, he had nothing. He couldn't come up with anything. And he was sitting on a boat and he wrote Octopus's Garden. Nice. And he came, you know, he's like, octopuses, God, and in the shade. And he's like, oh, God, is this good? Is this good? Can I give this? Can I show the band? You know, because in your mind, you're like, it's not, oh, it's not good enough. But he went and he walked up to those guys and said, I, I back, I'm, I've got a song. And he played it for them. And, you know, John and Paul were blown away. And they're like, we're recording it. Awesome. And, when the Beatles broke up, Ringo was the first one to have a number one song. And he became a solo artist and he wrote a song called Photograph. Oh yeah, I know. Nice. Photograph. First guy. So that sort of fearful process of you know confronting something that's fearful. Yeah. He's able to break through and then become like after the Beatles, he's like man, I can do this. I can go on my own. I can be successful. And he was, and he still is. And, you know, obviously I always have that Beatles thing. Like myself, I'll always be part of Guns N' Roses. People yeah. go, hey, guy was in Guns N' Roses. And why are you in the band now? Well, I'm not in the band now. I'm doing different stuff. I'm <laughs> like, and, well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing stuff. I'm like, you know. Yeah, we're doing lots, lots of stuff. We always just keep moving, right? It doesn't mean, I think when you're in a band, and I think your dad could probably explain this really easily as well, you're known for that band. And a fan would prefer if you were in that band forever. But as we all know, when Lemmy passed, Motorhead went with it. And, yeah. but Phil will always be Motorhead for the rest of his life. Yeah, man. And me too. I'm like, yeah, Guns N' Roses, I was in that band. Yep. And that takes you other places. It's like, look at, look at our, our friend Mickey in Scorpions now. Yeah. Because of Motorhead, he's in Scorpions. He's a good drummer. Yeah, that too. But he can play. He's great. He's got right person. You know, he can play. But he's got the legacy of Motorhead. And I have the legacy of Guns N' Roses, and that will never go away. And people call me and go, hey, man, I want you to do this thing. I, we love you. And the first band, they always say it's Guns N' Roses. And then comes Velvet Revolver. Yeah. Wow. Right? So that's a gift. You know, it's like navigating my life. Yeah, it was part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, that's some, no, you're totally right there. 
Can you tell me a little bit about Artbit? Oh yeah. Yeah. So Artbit, Artbit is a, a a platform that actually had created for live venues and live performances. So we're morphing it a little bit for for the uh, for the situation in the pandemic. It's actually been, and I have really exciting news, and I can't say the launch date yet. Okay. But the way this will work is basically it'll have an internal what we call a utility token. Now, if you read about it, it talks about cryptocurrency and digital currency. Well, there's a lot of legalities and, and regulation when it comes to that. But let's, let's just simplify it by saying artists and performers can go online, perform, and get tipped with a utility token in the process. So the money can be drawn from account, a credit card, PayPal, Venmo, Zeal, whatever you want. Now you create a wallet and you go watch performance. But the, the, the best part about the, the artist sites on Artbit is everybody can give back to causes. So what we want to create is impact. So art for change, if you will. So say you want to go and play guitar and, and, and sing a song. You're able to decide if you want to give 20% to charity, 5%, 10%. And then you can take all of it. You could take 50%. And you can actually monetize your content. Nice. Your because what a lot of people don't realize about intellectual property, and when you put your stuff up on Instagram stories or Facebook, you're not monetizing that. You're not being, they're making money on you because they now have your content. On Artbit, you'll be, you have your own intellectual property that has your piece and you'll be able to monetize it in real time. Unlike YouTube, when you place a video on YouTube, you get less than a thousand dollars for a million views. Did you know that? Yeah, I've, I've been reading up on it and it's devastating. <laughs> So they're taking a lot, you know, they're taking such a massive share because they got to run their multi-conglomerate company. Yeah. Their employees and their lighting bill. And so they're not able to share the way they should. Now, if you're a huge artist and you got hundreds and hundreds of millions of views, and that's a way to promote your live touring act or whatever else, well, that's different. Yeah. But... We know we're not making money on streaming. Yep. As a, not artists that are in the pop vein. We're not, we're, we're, we're making music. We're rock and rollers, man. We're like, we want to play. We want to put stuff out. We know we can't monetize it because there's not enough money to, to, to keep us. In the old days, it was physical product, records, CDs. You know, Guns N' Roses sold 75 million albums, right? So, we got all those residuals. And then we became guys that were now putting out music as a promotion for our tour. We're not making any money on the music, but we're trying to build the brand enough to be able to tour, make money, and sell t-shirts. Yep. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. That's that's all we can do at the moment. Where else is the source of revenue? That's yeah. that's not in streaming, not in YouTube. So that's why I created Artbit. And Artbit, I'm really into like 
you know, causes. And out of the pandemic, you're going to see this, that people are going to be more aware than ever about the shit that's going on in the world. And they're going to want to do their part to try to make this a better place. And that comes to every aspect of education, what's been going on in America with racism, animal abuse. I mean, the list goes on and on. But as an artist, we are responsible to let people know what's up. That's a good point. We can do it in a cool way. It's like, hey, man, here's my song, and here's what I'm doing it for. That easy. That's great, yeah. That's, it, I hope it really kicks off. I hadn't heard about it till today. I was reading up and I was like, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. I'll have to ask you about that. But um, Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I've been working on it for about four years. So can, can anyone, anyone can sign up to it or make an account? How? Yeah, well, it's not, it's not up yet. So I'm right. going to right. Davos in Switzerland last year going over some of the particulars. But like I say, we've morphed because of the pandemic because it was going to be a live venue instrument. Right. So you can there's a camera it's on your phone it looks just like instagram or snapchat or any of those things but it's all about art and music awesome. amazing and, you know if you you have to be a performer to get on there yeah you, this isn't tiktok where you're dancing around like i hate that i hate that <laughs> i hate it so much people keep you down if you're not basically yeah and cool. i will i will launch with some bigger artists and get it really circulating out there where people know about it. And, and like I said, I, I, uh, I feel really good about the impact part. When I say impact, impact tech, you know, people are getting really tired of watching celebrities on Instagram, you know, uh, influencers, if you will. But the one thing about the pandemic is it's equalized the planet. It's equalized the human race. Yeah. We are all one people more than ever you're not because you can get this shit too yeah so when it comes to equalizing everyone on the planet the communication is like you're exactly like me you're no different you're not special so don't dance around with on your instagram expect me to look up to you because you're just like me okay yeah maybe you're kylie jenner or whoever you are but i'm not i'm just not i'm sorry and and it's kind of a bad look for a lot of these influencers right now, thinking they they can do that. And people are struggling in the world, man. Yeah. The regular folk that get up every day and go to work and have a regular job. And who wants to hear some celebrity or some rich person get on their Instagram going, we're all going through this together while, we're, while they're sitting in their mansion. It's like, <laughs> you don't you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You don't know what I'm going through, man. No. We're down at the, co- at the corner bar that hasn't been open for six months, right? Yeah. Or I got a regular job. And I only say this because, you know, I came to Hollywood with $40 in my pocket. So you, so you know what it's like. I know what it's like to eat top ramen and, like, struggle. And, and probably one of my greatest fears is that I'm ever in a position where I have to you know, have a real job again because I've been lucky and blessed and grateful yeah. that I've been music and make a living. So I'm, I'm just saying the future of what happens after this pandemic is number one, if you're not a kind person and you're ego driven and you're, you're 
you're out there for yourself and you, you know, look at me, 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 it's not going to fly anymore. People are like, no, nah, man, we just lived through the worst catastrophe in the history of the world. And it ain't how we're playing it any, anymore. No. And that's where art bit comes in. This is a way for everyone to get involved and go, look, here's what I'm doing and here's what I'm doing it for. No, that's amazing. No, that's, everyone should look out for that when it's launched. Obviously, you can't say at the moment, but we'll keep an eye. Is it, I guess you'll announce on your social media, your Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, I, I, I did just announce my beer. I got a new beer. Have you? Ah, oh, amazing. I yeah. What kind of beer is it? Uh, it's an American lager, but I make it in Brazil. Oh. Uh, it's coming out of uh, uh, Brazil, and I just got um, into Bristol Farms here in America, and then we're gonna we're gonna be it's twelve stores, and then we're gonna be nationwide, and hopefully over in Europe when things get more adjusted. So it's called the Drummer Beer. Oh wow, the Drummer Beer. It's a really good beer. It's it's a it's a big bottle. It's like a a chunky IPA style bottle, but it's American lager, and we and the, the distillery that. A lot of people don't know this, but but Ambev, which owns Budweiser and St. Pauli Grow and a lot of beers, is a Brazilian-owned company. Oh, okay. So people say, Brazil? I'm like, yeah, well, there's a lot of European influence. My my distillery is Belgian-style. Okay. It's made Belgian-style and... and uh, yeah, what's the, what's the ABV? The ABV? Oh, uh, maybe... Is it like the... The alcohol percentage. Maybe you use a different term in America. Oh, the ABV. Oh, yeah. Um, I have to see what we're going to do for America, and then we might bump right. it up. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, cool. I, I have to go uh, with the partners and see what we got coming to yeah. America. We might have to shift it a little bit because it's, yeah. it's funny here. And then, um, so that's happening. That's probably going to be done and ready to go by, I hope, October. Awesome. Yeah. That's exciting, man. That's great. Yeah. Well, whenever it comes to Europe, let us know and uh, I'll try and get a few crates in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be, yeah. That'd be awesome, man. Cool. cool. Uh, that sounds great. Um, last thing then, I ask this to everyone I speak to. So it's, it's a bit of a difficult question. So with yourself on drums, who would be in your ultimate dream band, whether dead or live? Hmm. Man, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Bass player. John Paul Jones is one of the greatest bass players I've ever heard. Good answer. On keyboards. God, I always love John Lord on keyboards. Good answer. <laughs> Winwood on piano. You got both. Now, Stevie Winwood on organ. Okay. And I have two organ players? Yeah. You have two guitar players? Oh. That gives you more options. <laughs> Bill Campbell. <laughs> you don't have to say that. Bill Campbell. Me and Bill Campbell, did we have some fun together. When I left the Motorhead head tour, I cried like a baby. Yeah, <laughs> I actually said, I never have to play in another band again. I've just played with the greatest rock and roll band of all time. There's a scene in a movie called Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner. Right, I've never seen it, but continue. And 
Shoeless Joe Jackson from the team that got basically blackballed from American baseball. Right. He comes back as a ghost and he builds his field and he's been run out of baseball with the greatest baseball team of all time. At the end of the movie, Shoeless Joe Jackson is so happy that he was able to come back and play on this field that Kevin Costner had built in the middle of this cornfield. And it ends up, Sheila's Joe Jackson is Kevin Costner's dad. <laughs> right. Good dog. And he looks, he turns around and he says to him, son, thank you. And he walks off into the cornfield and he vanishes. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do after playing for Motorhead. <laughs> I'm going to walk off into the cornfield, disappear with my Motorhead tour jacket on. <laughs> I was, and I say this to Phil, and when Lemmy was alive, I was honored that, I don't know why they fucking called me. I'm like, what? And, and uh, yeah, it was probably one of the greatest times of my life because I'd always been in bands that were a little bit like, you know, could be difficult. Let me put it to you that way. Right, I see what you mean. Uh, when I was around with Motorhead, we were on stage every night on time. We played a rock and roll show, and let me open with the immortal words. We were Motorhead, and we play rock and fucking roll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we kicked in and fucking came off stage, and it was just like, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be done. Just like that. Yeah. Of course, I watched that band many times, but I'd never been in the energy of it. Like, and I'm up here with these guys, holy shit. And just rolling down the highway and, you know, it wasn't a long time. I was only out with them for a month. Yeah. But it was one of the greatest months of my life. And yes. I'd, of course I'd been in, you know, Wembley Stadium with Guns N' Roses and all that other shit. But it's very, very high on the list for me. And I always say that to people, you know. You never know what's coming down the pike, I say. And I said this at Lemmy's funeral. Because Velvet Revolver had broken up. And I didn't know, I didn't really know what I was going to do next. I had no band in sight, you know. We broke up in uh, 2008. So almost a year had gone by where I was sort of in limbo. Like, oh, shit. You know, and as a musician... Here I'd put Velvet Revolver together. We were very successful. We won a Grammy. We sold three million records. Yeah. I was like, can I do this? Can I pull this off again? Do I have it in me? You know, it's people think, oh yeah, get a band. Put a band together. I'm like, it's not that easy. No. So I was like sort of in the middle place of where I was going to do next. And all of a sudden I get invited by Lemmy to come play with Motorhead. And then on stage with with your dad and, and, and Lemmy. And so that really kind of like lifted me up a lot. Oh, nice. And I always said this, and I said it at Lemmy's funeral, it was like, it was almost like a God shot. It's like, you're going to be okay. Matt, you're going to be okay. You're going to move on. You're going to keep going. And when I left that band, when I left that tour, that, that small tour, I, I formed uh, Kings of Chaos and I started doing my own thing. And, Awesome. Like, uh, so yeah, I was a very, you know, and then 
similar to the call I got from Billy Gibbons to join his band. It's like that moment when you don't know. Yeah. And I always say to people, man, just have faith, man, because you don't know what's going to happen next. You know? Because as musicians, we kind of live in limbo a little bit sometimes. We're like, what's going on? I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, well, especially, well, I feel especially right now, it's, it's just so much uncertainty. There's all these dates being planned. Some dates are being postponed, but then you don't know if they're going to happen. Like, like I know you, what you mentioned earlier, I've actually had to get a normal job. You know, we don't have any, like our main income was from touring. And then, you know, a little bit of merch that we sell on the road. And that, you know, I, I just about scraped by making a living doing that. But that's not happening. Well, luckily you were able to get a job. Yeah, well, luck, exactly. I'm lucky to have that opportunity because yeah. most most companies are, you know, are laying people off. So yeah, I, I feel I, lucky for being able to have that option. Um, I know a lot of other people are struggling. And I don't know what it's like in America, but... Um, in the UK, they've it's like a furlough scheme, and the government government are paying like a percentage of your wages and stuff. But that's going to end soon, and it's going to end for musicians this month actually. But wow. they're not allowing shows to happen, you know, in the foreseeable future. But they haven't planned to help us out anymore. So I think everyone's got to this point now, where they're thinking, right? Well, I've managed to survive financially. Now, until now, because of the government, but I don't know what I can do for the next six months or the next year. Well, let me see if I can get this art pit thing going. Yeah, so yeah, that. exactly. That, that's what I mean. It sounds like a really good thing for people to explore. I get called every day to do like Zoom charity and this charity and that charity. And that's been going on for a long time, but in the last four or five months, more than ever, right? And I always say to people, you know, don't forget about us musicians, you know. I think there's some pre notion that we're all out here doing this for fun and that we actually don't have families to feed and a bills to pay. And music is sort of this gray area of, Oh yeah. You just do that for fun. Right? Yeah. I go, no, it's actually <laughs> how I make my living and I work and there's some idea that we don't work hard. It's like, Actually, we do work really hard. We get, we tour, when we tour, we're in a van or a bus bouncing down the highway for eight or 10 hours. We get on stage and we play and then we get right back in that van and we go down the highway and, and we're tired and we're entertaining and that's what we do. We're entertainers. Yeah. We're entertaining people come to see us. And, but I don't think they really register the fact that we're doing this we love it, number one, yeah. but we scale our life by putting in the work. And it's weird because, and that's a lot of the reason I, I did this impact art thing. That as an artist, you should be able to decide what you want to give of yourself. Because everybody comes to us, yeah, I got this charity thing where you guys play. And you're like, God, I've done like 10 this year. I'm like, yeah, you, how, yeah, you can only do so many. Don't get me wrong. I love helping. I love all of that. But then there's a point, especially now, that it's time for musicians and artists to have some relief. And what, what's going to happen to us? This isn't about you going out and having a good time. 
we've chosen our lives and this is what we're doing. And so I hope that we can find a solution to this for, for music, musicians, artists, uh, crew guys, uh, yeah. touring individuals, guys that run venues, clubs. Uh, it's, it's tough, man. And uh, I, my heart goes out to all the guys that are really struggling out there. And I hope, I hope I can get this pit thing up soon so we can find some solutions for some things, right? Yeah, man. Now we'll, I'll get everyone to check that out. And thanks again for taking the time to chat. And I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. It was really nice to meet you. Thanks. Yeah, I get, I get all the guys to make sure they're following you on Twitter if they're not already to get the updates about the bands and the beer, especially. And I got, the, uh, the art bit. I got Matt Sorum at Instagram, Matt Sorum at Twitter, Matt Sorum at Facebook. And then I got the drummer beer on Instagram. Great. I'll find them all. That's amazing, man. Enjoy your day. Thanks so much. Thanks, brother. Bye. Take care. Drum for the Song Podcast. Wow. What did you think about that, guys? What an amazing down-to-earth guy. Matt, thank you again for taking the time. I know you're a busy man. I had a big sheet of uh, things I wanted to ask Matt. But we didn't really get that far. But what he did tell us was uh, amazing. So don't forget to follow Matt on social media at Matt Sorum. You can find his new beer that's going to be released on Instagram as The Drummer Beer. If you're watching on YouTube, let me know how much you enjoyed that by leaving a comment in the comment section. Please subscribe to the channel and check out the other videos if you haven't done so already. I'm going to be keeping more coming as much as I possibly can. If you're listening on a podcast app, please make sure you're subscribing to Drum for the Song so you can keep up to date whenever there's a new episode. It should pop up on your screen. And if there's an option to rate or review me, that would be very much appreciated. If you have any musician or drummer friends who you might think would enjoy this content, please send it to them. Obviously, the podcast is totally free for you guys. Uh, if you really, really enjoy it and think you'll enjoy more, there are a few ways you can support me financially if you wish to do so. I have a Patreon page, which is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash drum for the song. Patreon allows you to sign up and make a monthly donation to me as a maker of the content. In return, I try and give you back some, you know, bonuses and exclusive content there's a new tier that i've just created for one pound per month which is a a basic thank you very much for the podcast you'll also get access to a private facebook group with my other patrons you can mingle with each other get sneak previews of upcoming guests access exclusive competitions and get advanced access to any merchandise that i might put out in the future the next tier would be £3 a month and the extra benefits for that would be that you get access to the podcast episodes at least one day before the official release and you'll unlock the private content on Patreon including a monthly bonus episode starting from August 2020. The tier up from that is £5 a month and you get all the stuff I've just mentioned 
but you'll also gain access to a monthly group Q&A video that I'll do via Zoom. Uh, I choose the time and date myself. If you're feeling really, really generous, there is another tier called the Groove Masters. That's £10 per month. And the extra benefits of that, including all the things I've just mentioned, are I will offer you a guest list ticket or free entry to a Phil Campbell and the Bastard Sons headline show. I will offer you the opportunity to ask one of my future podcast guests a question. As a thank you, I will put your name in the description of any future podcast while you're signed up. I will also give you a special thank you shout out for signing up to the top tier. At the moment, I'd like to thank Dean S. Monaghan and Rudy Pauly for signing up as Groove Masters. Thanks, guys. If you're really, really enjoying the podcast but don't like the idea of making a monthly commitment, that's cool as well. You can go to supporter.acast.com forward slash drum hyphen for hyphen the hyphen song and you can just make a one-off donation. But you know, the podcast is still free for anyone to listen to, so I appreciate any listens, anyone who wants to share it with anyone. Follow me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, at Drum for the Song, or I've got personal accounts on both, which is Dane underscore drums. If you're on Facebook, you can search for Dane Campbell Drummer and follow me on there. And I've also got a Facebook group as well for the podcast, so you can join up for free. Sometimes I put polls on there or, you know, extra content I won't put on my other pages. Also, feel free to let me know who you'd like to hear on the podcast in the future. You know, let me know on social media. You can feel free to at the other drummers in. It's always good to give me some ideas, you know, and it makes those drummers aware of the podcast as well. So, yeah, if you've just discovered this podcast, I've got a few more episodes if you want to go and look back. I've spoke to Nigel Glockler from Saxon and Ryan Richards from Funeral for a Friend. I'm going to aim to put out two podcasts a month at the very least. I think that's all for today. I hope you've enjoyed. Thanks again to Matt Sorum for being a complete legend. Uh, Until next time, and if you're a drummer, don't forget to drum for the song. (laughs) 